Bruce Larson, UPC's senior pastor from 1980 to 1990, passed away on December 15th. In honor of him, we're posting several of his sermons from his years at UPC. A beloved pastor and friend, Reverend Larson impacted countless lives, and his legacy of books and sermons will continue to share his wisdom and love. Here, one of the great adventure chapters in the Bible that ranks with the coming down of the walls of Jericho or the Red Sea parting or Daniel in the lion's den or Gideon's army. Dr. Luke, who is Paul's traveling companion, goes with him after Paul's request to have his case heard before Caesar in Rome. They are put on a ship uh, with a centurion named Julius. They go up to Myra where they change to a an Egyptian grain ship bound for Rome because Egypt was the great granary of Rome, and then begins this remarkable story of 14 days at sea, adrift uh, uh, at the mercy of the sea, drifting sideways toward the sand uh, flats off Libya, and uh, finally the shipwreck. But here, a portion of that. Uh, We begin with verse 18. As we were violently storm-tossed, they began next day to throw the cargo overboard. And the third day they cast out with their own hands the tackle of the ship. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many a day, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. As they had been long without food, Paul then came forward among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and should not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I now bid you take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood by me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And lo, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we shall have to run on some land." And then it tells about some more perils. And uh, finally, verse 33, As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, since not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said this, he took bread and giving thanks to God. In the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. And finally, verse 42, the soldiers, now the ship is now wrecked, about to be wrecked. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their purpose. He ordered those who could swim to throw themselves overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on the planks or on the pieces of the ship. And so it was that all escaped to land. Let us pray. Lord, we all know the storms of life on sea or land. Show us from your servant Paul the resources at hand for living life in the midst of storms. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Why? Because it is so biblical. It's not a chapter full of doctrine. It's simply a chapter that says God is and he intervenes in human history, in disasters, and it's a chapter that tells you and me how to live life. That's all. That's a joke. That's all this chapter is about. That's really what the Bible is all about. Doctrine is not the major theme. It's that God is with us in life, in the good and the bad times, and the Bible is a clinical manual telling us how to live life. Now, all of us have disasters. How do you handle the disasters that will inevitably come to you? How have you handled past disasters? Disasters happen to everyone. Verse 4, at the beginning of this chapter, at the, when the first of the two ships they take, they first take a ship from Caesarea up to Myra, and then they change to the grain ship to go to Rome. But it says from the very beginning, it's winter time, a bad time to be sailing in the Mediterranean, in an old uh, ship like they had then. It says, and the winds were against us. Now you say, but wasn't Paul God's missionary? Wasn't he God's hand-picked person to get to Rome? How could the winds be against him? Well, friends, there's no guarantees the winds won't be against you in life. Whatever you're, Christian, non-Christian, believer, unbeliever, on some work of destruction, on some work of mercy, you're going to have the same winds everybody else has. And sometimes they are against you. We just prayed for Tim and Carrie Dearborn, our, our India team of five, who leave here and get to Kuwait uh, and join missionary friends in a three-room apartment. There are now seven of them. Uh, living in three rooms, four of them desperately ill on penicillin. You say, but aren't they on God's work? Of course they are. How can these things happen? Well, that's life. A uh, little boy said, how come all the vitamins uh, are in spinach and not in ice cream as they're supposed to be? <laughs> but you see, the vitamins are in ice cream, are, I mean, are in spinach for everybody. Nobody is exempted. That's where the vitamins are. You know the, the poem we all learned in grade school, one ship sails east and one sails west with the self-same winds that blow. Tis the set of the sail and not the gale that determines where we go. The same winds blow for everybody, good sometimes, ill sometimes, and you go where you set your sail, not where the wind blows you. Now, we learn a lifestyle from models. We've been discovering, they've been discovering in psychology, for example, that what we thought was innate animal behavior is not that at all. Monkeys, who are taken from their mothers very, very young, who have no experience of being mothered, when they become mothers, don't know what to do with their babies. You see, you learn mothering from models of motherhood. Some of you are great mothers because you had great models. Some of you are not natural-born mothers. You never had a good model. But we learn life's uh, patterns from people uh, who show us how to do this. I think of two uh, twin, uh, twin brothers. One was a pastor in a town. One was a well-known doctor. And one Monday morning, they said to the doctor, someone said, what a marvelous sermon you preached uh, Sunday. No, no, he says, you've got the wrong man. That's my brother. He preaches. I practice. <laughs> well, we learn more from the people we see practicing than we do from the people preaching, I'm sorry to say. 
Now, you have learned from models. You have learned good, correct behavior in life storms, or you've learned rotten, destructive behavior. But you haven't learned it so much from the sermons you've heard as you have from the people around you in your past who have modeled something for you. What have you learned in a disaster how to behave? Say, for example, that uh, what well, could be a financial disaster, could be a, a, a medical problem where suddenly someone says you have cancer, or you could be driving over the, the cascades and suddenly you're on a lonely road, it's two in the morning, and you're out of gas and there's nobody around. Well, disasters come in all shapes and sizes. Let me give you a list, of, a multiple choice question. What would you do? What is the innate behavior that you would bring to a disaster situation? One, you can go to pieces become hysterical, crumple, or fold. That's an option. Or two, you can blame someone. That's the great thing about marriage. You have someone to say, Honey, if you had put gas in the car, this wouldn't have happened. I've told you and I've told you. And the marriage serves a very real purpose. <laughs> they say, you know, in youth, you can say what's wrong with you is your parents, but when you're mature, you say it's the younger generation that's what's wrong with the world. But you blame somebody. Or three, the thing I tend to do, unless I think and pray, is to blame myself. Disaster hits, I say, oh, Larson, now you have really surpassed yourself in dumbness. How could you do this? And then you beat yourself for a long time, which doesn't help the situation one bit. Or number four, you can pretend it is not happening. You can say, I think I will take a nap when I wake up. It may be over. You simply just drop out. Or you can put your headset on and go jogging, your things in your ears, and suddenly you're in your own bubble, your own world, and you leave behind things which you don't leave behind. Or I have relatives of mine who belong to a religion that will be nameless to protect the guilty, who, when I went to see my young nephew uh, some years ago, his upper arm was at right angles. It's broken in two. I said, oh, he has a broken arm. No, they said, he doesn't have a broken arm. God doesn't allow broken arms. But look broken to me, I said. <laughs> you can pretend something has not happened. Or five, you can use the chemical solution. A little booze, a few pills, or smoke some dope, as though that would change the circumstance you're in. Or, not a bad plan, if you've got this, is frantic effort. You are an organizer. My wife is a great organizer. She sees how to do anything better. But you can pray, you can get people lined up, you can send smoke signals up there from that road up in the cascade and say, we're going to organize, we're going to save ourselves. That's one way to handle a disaster. Or you can do the thing that Paul models for us this morning. He says, this is terrible. The ship's going to go down, but listen, it's okay. Now, before the ship breaks up, Let's have a picnic. Now, you all sit down. You haven't eaten for a while. The ship is now bouncing and crashing all around. He said, now, sit down. It'll do you, do you good. Somebody pass the pumpernickel. Where's the salami? <laughs> Who's got the ketchup? Uh, pass the jug over there. You know, and there they were, and Paul, and they all sit down, and they feel better in the midst of the ship about to be destroyed because someone says, let's have a picnic. Uh, I can think in my uh, life as, uh, I was about to say, head of the house. That, don't tell my wife I almost said that. As the male head of, the, of our family, 
I have gotten us into all kinds of predicaments over the years, camping up in Coeur d'Alene or on a houseboat trip of several thousand miles up the St. Lawrence River in New York Harbor, when we were in disastrous times and my ineptness and stupidity had gotten us there. Now, three members of my family would say what Oliver Hardy would always say to Stanley. Now, see what a fine mess you've gotten us into, Stanley. But one member of our family who will be nameless would say, Oh, listen, it's not so bad. We're going to make it. Let's get a cup of cocoa going here and uh, kind of sit down and think about it. See, that's the Paul response of the picnics. I saw this happen last year. One of the members of our church, who will be nameless, um, uh, is, uh, is the host of an annual uh, banquet. And most of the uh, important people of our city come. The governor was there last year, and I was saying the invocation, and many of the business heads were there. The guest of honor, to be honored, was Bob Hope. So we all sit down, we begin to eat, the guest is not there. Finally, near dessert, a telephone call comes saying Bob Hope's Learjet is broken down in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He won't be there. Now what do you do? Disaster. Well, I saw this beautiful brother of mine, one of our members, simply say, well, the guest of honor is not here, let's have a party. And we had a party, and the thing went on, and it was beautiful, it was marvelous. I'm not sure I could have pulled it off. But that's the way to handle unexpected disasters. Mark Twain says, I'm an old man, and I have seen a lot of troubles in my lifetime that never happened. <laughs> and in a disaster, you know, worrying is like driving your car with your emergency brake on. It doesn't really do much good. Now, what we need are authentic models, people who can show and demonstrate to the world what the gospel is. People at your school, at your office, in your factory, in your neighborhood, who, when disaster comes, you can model for people something of the power of the gospel. And what a chance we have, what an opportunity for the church to be a witness in the world, not through a sermon in a pulpit, but through the, the, the saints of God living it out when the winds are against you. In our scripture this morning, we find, first of all, after the winds are against them, that Paul says, listen, listen, I have traveled a great deal, and I know what the winds are like. I'm an old shipboard traveler. Let's not uh, make the journey now. Let's stay over for the winter. Now, he was an amateur, and they ignored him. They preferred to take the advice of professionals, which they did, and disaster hit them. I don't know if you saw in yesterday's Seattle Times interview with my friend Jonas Salk, who was the uh, discoverer of the Salk vaccine that cured polio, but when they asked him about his newest adventure, which is a think tank in La Jolla, where he's into philosophy and all kinds of things, Salk said, it's a marvelous thing, he said he never was trained uh, in most of the disciplines that he pursued, immunology, microbiology, vir virology, epidemiology, he said, now philosophy. I'm a professional amateur, which means I have learned enough to ask the right questions. So don't ignore the amateurs, the professional amateurs around you who come in and say, listen, if they listened to Paul, this wouldn't have happened. So they move on instead and they uh, take the professional's advice. Then the disaster hits and they say there's no hope and they throw everything overboard, real danger. And then Luke, the physician who is recording the story of the, the early church, our story, Luke has to say to, to keep pointing up Paul's humanity. See, the treasure of the gospel is in very frail vessels, cracked pots like you and me, earthen vessels. 
And he says, Paul says, well, first he says before he's constructive, well, I told you so. He has to say, you see, if you'd listen to me, we wouldn't be in this mess. Nevertheless, I told you so. Now we're here, he says, let's have a picnic. The Lord has told me that I've got to get to Rome, and therefore we're all going to be saved. So don't worry, the ship will be lost, but we're all going to be saved, no loss of life. So we have a lot of work ahead of us. Sit down, enjoy, pass the rye bread, pass the salami, uh, pass, you know, whatever you got, the ketchup, and we're going to picnic, and they did, and they took heart. See, this is the witness in the midst of disaster of what authentic faith is all about, how to be constructive when life is against you. It's the doctor who comes into his patient after he has said, you have a very serious illness. The next day he comes in, he says, but the reports tell me you're going to make it. That's not a medical opinion. Nobody knows who is going to make it, but a real doctor who is a physician of the soul can say at times you're going to make it. And Sir William Osler, our great North American physician pioneer, said most people get well because they have faith in the doctor's faith in the cure. The doctor says, hey, there's a storm in your life. Let's have a picnic. You're going to make it. And people believe it. It's an amazing thing. Uh, one, one time in our uh, living in South Florida before we came here for six years, uh, six months of the year is hurricane time. And when the biggest hurricane of our six years was about to hit, we had just come from overseas, our whole family, had moved into the, our house to find all of our neighbors had moved out. Hurricane warnings. We're new. What do you do? Well, you take the windows and you get terrified. Well, here we are. Our neighbor's gone. We're there. Too late to leave now. Causeway's closed. Our youngest son said, uh, I think I will uh, get my surfboard out because we don't usually get good waves like this in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, I think I'll do a little bit of surfing while we wait for the hurricane. And, you know, we all kind of relaxed. And there was old Mark out there surfing in these enormous waves saying, let's make the most of a hurricane. And that's not too unbiblical. A friend of mine tells about his mother in the Depression. He said, we were so poor in the Depression, as many of us were. And he said, uh, we didn't have a lot to eat and clothing was skimpy. But he said, you know, my mother was the saving grace. Against my father's wishes and incurring his anger, when things got their worst, she would go out and spend money we didn't have to buy a great big gorgeous hat. And she would come in and wear that hat like flying a flag, which said to us, we're going to make it. He said, I thank God for my mother's hats that gave us all hope. Kind of a picnic in the storm. And sure enough, they all were saved. Well, what is Paul's secret? The Bible tells us, really, that there are, uh, Paul's secret is how to live an authentic Christian lifestyle when disasters come. First of all, believe that the Lord can work in disasters. Expect it. Expect him to work. Claim that he's going to work. Even when you have been disobedient and dead wrong, as, as Paul's uh, superiors were, they went against God's guidance, and God was still there. Even when you've done something wrong or disobedient, the Lord still loves you, and God can work. Uh, Bob Schuler, my friend Bob down at the Crystal Cathedral, says a very profound thing. He says there is something wrong with every great idea. So when you say in your committee or board or session or something, listen, what about somebody's bound to say, that'll never work. There is something wrong with every great idea. Now, that's a Schulerism, and I commend it to you. Here's a Larsenism. There is something potentially great in every disaster. 
in every disaster you ever will be in again, God has a gift for you. Claim it and say, God, I want the gift you have for me in this disaster. One of my friends who is a founder of a world mission group right now to help the poor all over the world has the gift that when he's in Africa or the Caribbean or in South America working with the poor, when some government or group puts a roadblock up, this leader of this mission says, oh, this is wonderful. Now, let's see what God will do. And God always does something wonderful. The problem is his disciples who've been sent out around the world who have just as much faith and just as much hope, really, when disaster hits, they invariably say, well, this is it. We've had it. How do you learn to live with that kind of hope? See, this is a rare gift of God. Now, the second thing I'd say that we learn about life is that someone said life may be a shipwreck, but it's a sin not to sing in the lifeboats. So your ship is wrecked. You're in a lifeboat. Now the time is to spread your wings like eagles, soar on the thermals. You can be a clam in disaster and close your shell and wait it out. Or you can be an eagle that soars. They that wait upon the Lord, even disasters, will find the thermals. You'll find the wind and the fire of the Holy Spirit there to soar above that. And uh, it's fantastic. But the third thing is that you know how the game ends. Have you ever watched a football or a basketball game where it's, it's uh, a replay from earlier? And you've seen the score, you've heard the score. Now, here come our beloved Sonics or our beloved Seahawks, and you've already heard the outcome, and so suddenly something terrible happens, the opposition surges ahead, or we do something dumb. How relaxed your stomach is, because you know how it's going to win. We're going to win. See, life is like that for you and me. God says, listen, you're going to make it. You're going to, somehow, some way, you may not live a long time, but you're going to make it ultimately, so relax. The... Um, the Boston Celtics, when they were a championship-winning team consistently, had a coach called Red Auerbach. And he had a habit. He used to drive the opposition crazy, but the fans loved him. And some of you remember this, that when the game was being played, the moment when he thought the game was out of reach, when now his Celtics had put the game beyond where the enemy could, uh, could claim victory, he would take out a big cigar on the sidelines and light up. And the fans would cheer because our box cigar meant we've got it made. Now, I don't think the Lord smokes cigars. But I want you to look for that sign that when you're in the midst of disaster, look for that assuring sign, the nod, the wink that says, hey, you're home free, and you can relax and say, hey, let's have a picnic. People watch you when you are in trouble. It's a powerful witness to who your Lord is. Don't waste it. When disaster hits, be someone who says, let's have a picnic.